You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with the Strong Towns podcast. Welcome back. My wife a while back sent me an article and said, "You have to read this." My wife does that occasionally, and I do try to read everything she sent me. This one, I dropped everything and read it and read it again and read it again a third time later on and said, "We have to get the author of this on our podcast." It's a topic that I have to say I don't completely understand and grasp, but the most intelligent woman in my life said uh, this is worthy, and and boy, I, I think it certainly is. On the line with me, I have from Asheville, I believe, Beth Berry. Beth runs the website revolutionfromhome.com. She describes herself as a life coach, writer, and mother of four. Beth, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it, Chuck. It's, it's good to be here. Are you living in Asheville right now? I am. Okay. Yes, been here about four years. Oh, okay. What brought you to Asheville, actually? So my family and I had been living in southern Mexico for four years, spent some time abroad, and we were looking to uh, come back to the States and live somewhere. We were in Austin, Texas before that, and having slowed down to the pace of of Mexico, we couldn't fathom going back to a big city uh, the traffic and everything. So, uh, Asheville fit the bill of what we were looking for mountains and great folks, good size. So it's been, it's been a good fit for us. Asheville. I've been to a a number of times. Uh, one of our kind of closest collaborators here at strong towns lives in Asheville, a guy named Joe Minicosi. I would suspect that the Austin to Asheville pathway is a pretty common one. Actually. Is that your your sense? It it is. Yeah. Yeah, There are lots of, lots of Texans here. (laughs) By way of a background, would you mind talking a little bit about your time in Mexico? I'm most interested in the intellectual transformation you had about the pace of life and what what matters in life. It it seemed to me in going through your website that that was a a very formative experience for you. It was absolutely pretty transformative, I would say. Yeah, uh, transformative. Yeah, that's a better word. Mm-hmm. When we were living in Austin, you know, we had kids ranging from three to 15 or so and just caught up in the rat race like so many other people living at a pace that we never set out to live and I mean it just sort of happened trying to keep up with all the things and uh, moved south and were just sort of dumbfounded and blown away that it was even possible to slow down to that pace you know it really is different. People don't have the same expectation of constant striving for productivity and sense of accomplishment. And it, it just a, across the board, there's a, a slower pace of life. And it, the permission for that slower pace all around us, you know, just that it, when everybody else is moving fast, I think it's, you just, it, you assume it's normal. And keeping up is is what you do. And um, that was just not the case. I had to learn to slow down. It it didn't take that long, but it was certainly the first month. I was sort of like, what are we going to (laughs) do? You know, then it turned into, well, I don't have to do anything. It's kind of funny, the things we thought we needed to bring to Mexico. I was so concerned about, like, what are we going to do with our time? And that that became a non-issue really quickly as it became obvious that if I had nothing to do, then I could walk through the the streets of the town and just listen to Spanish being spoken and observe. And I felt like a kid in my curiosity again and, and the sense of freedom I felt that I didn't have anything to do and it was okay. <laughs> you know, that was the thing. There was nothing to do and I felt okay about it. Uh, previously, if I wasn't doing something, I felt like I was sort of being lazy or that I was going to get behind somehow. The, the culture shifted my my perspective on what I needed to do in order to, to be okay, to be worthy, to be uh, successful by some measure. I sense you're using U.S. American kind of terms when you say doing. Your days were certainly filled with something. What, what were they filled with if it wasn't, uh, you know, doing things 
the way that we've come to understand it. I would wake up in the morning and I was started writing when we lived in Mexico. So I would, I would, you know, make tea and soak our vegetables <laughs> that we got from the market, which was essential because the parasite thing is real. <laughs> and I would do a little writing and then I would take a walk and I would observe and go back to the market. I would learn a few Spanish phrases and go out and try to practice them. And what it felt like I was doing now, looking back at it, my nervous system was unwinding. I was learning to just not have an agenda and let curiosity lead me. So I would take a walk to a, you know, a part of town that I hadn't been to and I would notice things. And what, what was actually happening more than anything is that my my mind was being blown, you know, by poverty and by the richness of the culture there and how family centric it was by specifically the Mayan women and the ways that there were kids around them all the time. And it was just such a, such a different way of living than what I had been accustomed to. And just to see that that was possible and that these people seemed pretty content. Um, it was a game changer. The article that my wife shared with me was called Why Modern Day Motherhood Feels So Frustrating. I have watched her. We have two daughters, uh, not a four. I <laughs> I can't imagine. The two are beautiful, but oh my gosh, it just seems like it exponentially grows with each one. The uh, The chaos in our system today. She sent me this and she said, this is exactly what I'm dealing with and the emotions that I feel. She's an INFJ in the Myers-Briggs test, exactly like you. What prompted you to, to write this? And, and you write it as the beginnings of a master list. It's genius. It's brilliant. This really taught, has really opened my eyes a lot. But what, what prompted you to sit down and write this one specifically? Well, I've been working with mothers through my coaching practice for a few years now, and hearing these themes come up that very much reflected my own experience have reflected my own experience of motherhood. I have this growing fire in my gut that is just so much frustration around how inadequate mothers feel when really what I see is that we're not being supported in this amazing amount of work that we're trying to take on. It's a failing of the, the system that we're trying to mother within, not our own personal failings. We're doing so much my inspiration for the article is really just a mounting frustration and sadness, really, for how many times I hear the story. I don't know what's wrong with me. What is wrong with me that I can't keep up with all these things? Everybody else seems to be able to, you know, whatever. And, and I just every time I hear that, I'm like, nope, not everybody else is either. Everybody's saying the same thing. Everybody's feeling inadequate. You know, across the board, mothers mothers are feeling like it doesn't actually matter how much they hustle, how dedicated they are to their kids, how sustainable their lifestyle, how eco-friendly their lunchboxes and how much organic food and how much they sacrifice and how little they sleep. It doesn't actually matter until there's an inner shift in the way we, we're thinking about this whole picture. There's going to be a sense of inadequacy. And that, that's the... That's the inspiration for the article. I'm just I'm fed up, fed up, <laughs> fed up with it feels really unfair. And I'm really determined to be a part of changing this narrative while I'm here on Earth. Would you mind if we went through a couple of these? Sure. Yeah. The very first one struck me right off the bat. Parenting standards and expectations have risen while support has dropped. You make the case that we've come a long way in parenting. And I agree. I mean, I think the, the expectations of, of parents today, <laughs> I, I look at, you know, my parents, my uh, grandparents, we were uh, spanked and sent outside. Oh my gosh, you would never do that today. So we have higher expectations, but the support structures are not there. Can you just talk a little bit about the implications of that? Well, I, I love that you just painted that picture because that's it. <laughs> Most of us can say something similar, you know, it, how, how were we parented? Well, you were you were disciplined and then you were sent outside. It was, that was the combo. <laughs> and it isn't that there wasn't a lot of love in many of our childhood experiences, but it was that discipline was simple and there was an absolute control. There was an absolute no that was socially acceptable in, in spanking or whatever. You take that away and suddenly we've got to be jumping through hoops and 
so creative in our parenting approaches in order to try to keep some sense of control. And, and of course, we don't want it to be about control. We want it to be about connection. And so the amount of time that it takes to parent creatively is insane. It's really, really, uh, especially you have one kid and then, as you know, you have another kid and they require a whole different tool set in order to stay connected. And um, they're definitely not copies of each other, right? No, they're really not. And, and, uh, and then at the same time, we're not sharing the load as we always have been throughout history with grandma and aunties down the street and really, truly just the roaming packs of neighborhood kids. Where are they? They're not there anymore. And so not only have the parenting standards risen, but now the pressure is on the, the parents in the home to be playmates. And disciplinarians who are practically need a PhD in child psychology to do anything <laughs> right by today's standards. And then most parents are also having to work for pay in order to put food on the table. And especially if you're trying to eat healthy food and maybe you're also trying to afford an alternative education so that you can spare your kids the failings of the public school system. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. There's like no end once you start going down the rabbit hole. I'm going to resist the temptation to make this about me because uh, (laughs) the article is really about mothers. And and you say at the end of that first statement that mothers feel this pressure most. I accept that. Can you elaborate on that? I certainly recognize that the impact is this is also impacting fathers and family systems in general. The reason I think that it's impacting mothers most is that we're still living at a time when more often than not, moms are home with kids. Mothers are women, I'm going to say, and and I'm going to make some, some generalizations here. Women are wired for connection. It's a basic need to talk through the struggles we're having, to have other women that were, you know, it's just sort of that image of women down at the creek washing clothes together. That's a basic need we have emotionally that's not being met. So the sense of isolation, I think, is really real for lots of women who are, who are trying to figure it out alone. There are also the issue of biological wiring and hormones. When I was having babies, you couldn't pry those babies out of my arms for anything when they were newborn. I didn't want to leave my babies. I mean, even if my husband at the time had been willing to stay home with them, everything in me was wired to to be with those babies and protect them from, that was a biological leaning. That's true for lots of mothers. And not not every mother has that strong of a of a feeling that she wants to be home, but many do. So the combination of that and the sort of sense that we need to be doing this together and that's not there. And the fact that we, that it still is true that a lot of times it's the mom home. I think that's that combination is, is why so many, so many mothers are feeling it most. The eighth and the 11th one on this list both struck me too, just from a historical standpoint in a related way, you say number eight, we have no villages or tribes to support us. And number 11, grandma doesn't live next door. Why is that important? Why is that something that is missing? You mentioned uh, being down at the river, washing clothes together. And you think of the, the thousands of years that humans did that. We're not doing those kind of things today. How is that affecting women and the way they you know, raise children and are part of families? I'll tell a a quick story to kind of illuminate this point. One of my clients, and this is not uncommon, called the other week and (laughs) the first issue that we were going to tackle together, and and I'm not kidding about this, was how can she get a shower more often? (laughs) And and she's she's saying, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I believe you. I believe you. But she's saying this while weeping. Her basic needs are not being met for even just hygiene, because her husband's working constantly to try to support the family financially. And she's got little ones, tiny little kids. So she can't, you know, she could take the the, the newborn baby maybe into the, sh- the bathroom with her while she showered. But then there's still the issue of the, the two-year-old and the four-year-old who are 
it's not actually safe to leave them alone. And so all she wants right now, the main thing that feels like it would alleviate some of her stress is if she could have every other day an hour so she could actually shower and brush her hair and brush her teeth uninterrupted. Like we're talking basic stuff here. These are some of the things that would never have been an issue if you had a grandma to hand a baby off to and go get your shower. The opportunity to meet even our most basic needs is compromised when we don't have more than one adult around when you've got more than one child. Because there's something that I think people don't recognize that happens when you are the primary caregiver for a child, your nervous system can't relax. Because if you're not hypervigilant, their their safety is threatened. Their lives are at risk if our nervous systems are not completely on with kids. That is super taxing to anyone to have an engaged nervous system that never gets a break. We don't have enough opportunities for those breaks. Most primary caregivers. You write that we don't have enough interaction with our elders. We looked at moving years ago. I, my wife and I and our, our daughters live in the city I grew up in. And my wife and I, you know, met here in, in high school and junior high and went, went to college together and came back. We looked at moving a couple of times, but there's always this question of like, who will help uh, with the kids? Mother-in-law lives up the road. My mom lives up the road the other direction. They're around always and, and helping out a lot. You write in here that we don't have as much interaction with our elders. I I watch my kids interact with their grandparents. And I remember growing up around my grandparents and having that be a a very important thing. Why why is that important? Especially from the standpoint of a mother, why, why is that interaction so important? I think for a lot of reasons. I think kids need this felt sense that they're held within a community, not just a household that their sense of safety and security in the world is largely comes from knowing that there's a greater container that holds them and that loves them and supports them as they grow. Grandparents offer obviously a different, a different perspective, a different way of doing things that the love feels different. The caring feels different that, that kids are exposed to, you know, like I had another client recently say, I would love to take my mom up on her offer to watch the kids for the weekend so I can get a break, but it's hard to to do that because I know that when they go to her house, um, they're eating junk food and they're, you know, they're watching TV and my mom gets impatient and she might yell at them or something. And by the time we got to the end of the conversation, uh, she had concluded that actually even so... (laughs) It's better. She's better off getting breaks and those kids getting exposure to their grandparents, even if it's so this is what I'm talking about. We have such a perfectionistic view of parenting that even the people who love our kids most next to us, the standards have gone up so high that we think we're somehow damaging our kids when they go see grandma for the weekend and she spoils them with, you know, junk food that maybe we're being bad parents. All of a sudden grandma is inadequate because she has too many ice cream candy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When that, you know, that's kind of the way that was grandma's have always been. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of why grandparents are so important for parents, aside from offering support in the way of giving breaks, we need mentorship. We need more mentors. And I, I don't think that our mentors have to be our own parents or the, or the in-laws always, but we do need people uh, who've been there and, and experienced parenting and life to be able to help guide us and say, you're doing great. This is hard. This is normal. And we're, we're just disconnected from, from that more and more. Another thing that I'm seeing that is creating some real challenge for people. I think this could ruffle feathers if taken in the wrong way. There are a lot of parents these days who have at least seemingly a more evolved parenting perspective, you know, like that they are actually frustrated because the mentorship they would like to be receiving from their parents feels less evolved. 
in terms of consciousness or the conscious parenting than what they're doing. And so they're having to explain to their parents why they don't spank their children, for example. And there's some resentment that's happening intergenerationally, I see, from today's parents toward their parents for not being the kind of mentors that they're wanting. It, it's really interesting. We're living in a really interesting time when it comes to uh, child rearing and, and parenting. My daughters are 13 and 11 now, but I do remember when they were very small and my, my first one uh, was a real challenge at bedtime, a real challenge. The advice from the elders we were given, not all of them, but <laughs> some of them was uh, you got to let them cry it out. You got to let them just, you know, scream until they, they fall asleep and get used to it. You know, my youngest that might've worked for, she just liked to go to bed. Uh, my oldest would scream till she threw up and her mom, my wife said like, this does not work. There was a lot of frustration with that. I see moms today who I think, you know, put their kids in bubble wrap and, you know, don't let them not just not eat dirt, but not like be around dirt. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a certain amount of my parents are like, you know, go, go out in the woods. Like I, you know, get out of here. Is there a fine line between, you know, go play with guns and matches, which is how I grew up and, uh, you know, put you in bubble wrap and, and not get you exposed to anything. Are, are you seeing like, there's a, there's a balance there that we need to try to find. I think so. And I think it's individual. Uh, it's, it's different for, for everyone and every family. I absolutely think that we have things, we still have a lot to learn from our elders, even though I also think it's true that many parents these days have a, a greater sense of what is healthy for, for kids in their development. I really do. I think we've got, we've got more information now. We, there's more, there's been lots and lots and lots of studies done and we've, we, we understand more about attachment theory and we understand more about so many things. That's beautiful. That's progress. I don't think it's progress that we have become so fearful about, you know, the impact of the world on our kids. I, I do think we have a lot to learn from our parents in that we aren't so uptight about everything and that the kids are fine. They're going to be fine. <laughs> that message <laughs> is important for us to hear. They're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. Let them go play outside. Let them get dirty. Certainly when it comes to things like gun control and fire safety, there's, it's great that we've, been make, that we've made progress towards uh, safer practices and more awareness. But I think it's a real shame that we're not looking to our elders for more than we are. There's a lot we have to learn about letting kids learn from their mistakes. There's a big difference that you'll see when you talk to new parents of young kids versus parents who have adult children. Across the board, parents of adult children recognize that compromise is essential and that you have to let them fall and fail. And there's, you can't get around it. We, young parents these days need more of those messages that it doesn't matter how hard you try, you still can't spare your children from pain. You still cannot spare them from, from being human, from the human experience. And that seems to be what a lot of parents are trying to do anymore. And it's, it's, it's wearing us out. You talk about car culture being hard on kids and hard on moms as a result. Boy, did I witness that. Can you talk a little bit about car culture? and how it's uh, affected families and, and mothers in specific. There was a time when we lived in Austin when I had, this, had created this, this narrative in myself that at the bare minimum I, minimum, I wanted to give my kids the opportunity to be involved in one sport, one physical activity, and get good at that if they wanted to, and, and one instrument. Like that, that felt like bare minimum, you know. That meant eight lessons or sporting events that I would be driving to every week. Eight for my four kids. And that was, that was the bare minimum. And that's insane. It used to be that if kids wanted to play baseball and the baseball field was three miles away, you better start walking early because that's the only possible way you're getting there. And now parents have just absorbed all of that. And we feel actually that it's, we're not good parents if we don't 
provide our, our children with all the possible opportunities in the world, we're not only running ourselves ragged by meeting the basic needs of getting to the grocery store and taking kids to doctor's appointments, but now add to that the expectations we have of ourselves to provide endless opportunity for our kids' growth. So another way I see this affecting parents and also kids is that because there are so many opportunities out there and expectations that that kids deserve these opportunities, that's part of the decline of the roaming packs of kids in the neighborhood. Where are the kids? Well, they're at their lessons across town. Um, If they're not inside on screens, they're, you know, all summer long, where are the kids? Well, they're in summer camp, you know, across the county. This is another example of how lots of wonderful um, things have come as a result of our culture. And and we're also experiencing some pretty tragic consequences in, in the breakdown of, of truly local community and, and neighborhoods. You talk in here about being disconnected from women's stories, myths, and traditions. I was caught off guard when the Wonder Woman movie came out last year. I was caught off guard. My wife is not really a superhero movie person, but even she was talked about this movie and it it meant a lot to her. I go to movies all the time. I love kind of the action. All of a sudden, all these women in my life who I'd never kind of pondered being interested in superhero movies were just going nuts over Wonder Woman. We have lost something. And when I read this, you know, you said we're disconnected from women's stories, myths, and traditions. And then you also write that sacred ceremonies and rituals are few and far between. Talk a little bit about what that would have looked like and what what that means for women. Like, why is that really important in a community that we have rituals and myths and and stories and traditions and, and those kind of things? Certainly, historically and cross-culturally, this looks like something unique and different and throughout history and in different cultures. But I do see that within today's culture and U.S. culture, we don't have a lot of, as far as stories and myths, not many of us can think about, you know, um, stories that have been told that illuminate the progression from sort of the maiden archetype that is so celebrated in this culture that we're supposed to be perpetually useful um, women and the progression into the motherhood archetype. And then the progression from that into the crone, or if you break it down a little bit more, I would say that there's another archetype in there, the, the wild and wise woman, even before the crone. Most people have never even thought about this or never been exposed to these ideas, but we certainly don't have language that celebrates these progressions. And so we are sort of stuck in this feeling like, well, I'm supposed to try to look 18 years old (laughs) and I'm supposed to try We're always trying to bounce back to the way we were before we were having babies or that we're supposed to look and be youthful instead of celebrating the aging process. And, and the wisdom that comes with it. In terms of you know, myths and stories, I think that's a, a major part of what's lacking. You bring up basically rituals around growing up and different points in your life and how we celebrate them. And I, I've seen my own daughters kind of go through this as you know, their bodies have started to change and, and they're becoming very different people along the way. Some of that is, I mean, most of that is very private. I mean, very private in a way that even dad is not brought into the conversation. It seems to me, and I think you kind of jog this in my mind with your writing, that it didn't always used to be that way. It used to be, some of this was very public and celebrated. And, you know, my gut reaction is there's some patriarchy with that too, when you give away a bride, uh, those kind of things. But you're kind of pointing out another side of this, and I just want to give you a chance to talk about that. When we don't have examples culturally within our our close-knit families or our communities or the the culture at large of what it means, what's powerful about becoming a woman as opposed to a girl, uh, making the transition into adolescence, uh, rites of passage, those are pretty much been stripped from from culture across for men and women, but certainly there's not 
a recognition of the power we come into um, potentially when we become a mother and the, the wisdom that motherhood helps us to acquire. Instead, in fact, I would say most mothers feel less empowered than they did before they started having children because we've, we don't hold motherhood in reverence. Um, in this culture, I mean, beyond, you know, a Mother's Day card or the sort of once a year sort of thing, we don't think of mothers as some of the most important figures within our culture. We certainly don't think of grandmothers as some of the most important figures in our culture. So that means that we as the mothers and grandmothers don't see uh, that value in ourselves. It hasn't been reflected to us. Uh, whereas I think other cultures and throughout history, there's been a better job done in some cultures anyway, of revering the grandmothers and the grandfathers and and elders for what they offer in in within a community. That's a tragic loss in my mind because we celebrate, we're so celebratory and um, lustful after youth. Uh, we've we've forgotten. So as a woman progresses, she feels less attractive. She feels less powerful. I know a woman, a good friend of mine, just two days ago, we were talking, she was talking about moving to a new town. She's 54. And she said, I'm afraid to move to a new town because I'm, I actually don't know that I'm going to be employable anymore. 54. This is a woman that that's the age at which I think women ought to be most employable. You've got some things figured out by that point. You, you know, you, that these are some of the wisest women in our culture are in their fifties right now, forties and fifties. I'm, I am then sixties. I it's, uh, but when we haven't been told that our whole lives and when that hasn't been demonstrated since the time we were little, it's hard to see ourselves that way. Also in terms of rituals and things, there's something that I think is really essential about saying that when girls start menstruating, for example, it has everything to, the way, to do with the way that we are holding that as a culture. You're right that, that that's now private and it's shameful and we don't have a lot of language around it. And so even, you know, with, with my girls, <laughs> when I would try to do some of those kinds of things, they were mortified. Right. Like, Mom, <laughs> Mom, why are you please, so weird? Right. Don't, you're so, <laughs> please don't do anything. It's a, with one of them, I remember, I was like, how about if we just go and we, you, you can get chocolate and pick out something, you know, like it, it had to be about like shopping and chocolate or something for her to be okay with there being any ritual around it. But she said, we were in the Whole Foods and she said, fine, but just don't buy me flowers because then everyone's going to know. <laughs> it was like so it's just not being modeled across across culture um and again when women have babies so many of us are in our homes or first at the hospital and that can, that's a whole other way that we're that there's a lot of disempowering experiences happening uh, not and not just hospital birth but birth in general um is an unfortunately disempowering experience for a lot of women. And, but then we're, we go home with these newborn babies and no idea what we're doing uh, and no one's supporting. And then there wasn't also wasn't a, a, a ritual or ceremony to help us see ourselves as newly powerful and to celebrate this huge transition. Because when we become mothers, we change. We're not, we're not meant to bounce back. We're meant to, we're, we're growing into more evolved beings, but that's not, we don't know that because no one tells us that. And so in the absence of, of ritual and, and ceremony, those are the, those, those, those are big moments like marriage where how much emphasis do we put on that? What about the, the process of becoming a mother or. It seems like the only ritual we really have kind of relates to your, your observation on drowning and stuff. You know, we have the baby shower where we give you a, b a bunch of gifts and uh, send you on your way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it, it misses the point. It, it misses the core of what we're needing as uh, we need affirmation that we're capable. We need affirmation that what we're doing is important because if you think about it, you're moving it at, when you become a mother, you're moving into some of the most selfless, <laughs> challenging, emotionally and physical 
physically, some of the most isolating, um, thankless work you will ever do in your life. And if, if that doesn't come with the message that what you're doing is unbelievably important, you can see why you've got so many discouraged, overwhelmed, <laughs> underappreciated women with, with deeply unmet needs. So I'm a engineer and a planner, and I've worked for years with cities building places. And I have to say, these are not only very technical professions, professions where we work out of code books and accepted standards. Uh, they also tend to be very male-dominated professions. Uh, that's changing a lot and changing very quickly. You know, the skills that are applied, the sentiments that are applied, the, the way we go about things, the established practice is certainly very male and male-oriented. I'd like to ask you some questions, and I, I guess I want to preface this by saying I am a firm believer that you do not have to have answers in order to you know, make observations about things that are wrong. So you've observed a lot of things that we're struggling with. I don't think that that necessitates you having well thought out point by point answers to what we should do. I more just want to explore uh, some of your thoughts on this. And I guess I'm just cueing in the, uh, the listeners that I want to give you as much room here to kind of just think outside your box and I don't want people to judge you on, uh, on your thoughts because, you know, in a world of planning, they might sound crazy. I think we need to listen to this. And that's why I, I wanted you on the, the program. So I guess my first question would be for people who are designing cities, designing places where people live, what kind of things do you think those kind of people should have in mind and, and know about mothers? What should some of the priorities be that maybe aren't priorities today? I think that the less dependent we are on car culture, uh, more walkability. So in in Mexico, when we were living there, there were in the town that in San Cristobal in southern Mexico, there was several streets called the, the Andador, it, the walking streets. There, there are no cars ever on these streets unless people are unloading something. But this whole, the several streets, um, are just for pedestrians and their cafes and restaurants. It's a place where people come together and it's outside and it kids can run within community planning. The more spaces we can have where cars are not and our needs can be met. You know, we can have a need for or the need for connection. For example, <laughs> connections are being encouraged through like, what do, what do people do? day-to-day -day anymore? Um, and how can we inc incorporate more of that being walkable and also kid-friendly? So having the grocery stores and the, um, the coffee shops and the playgrounds and the beautiful, you know, green areas clearly have a lot of that be within walking distance to neighborhoods so that we're, we're not having to get in our car and drive 20 minutes across town to, to meet these basic needs, because there's so much that happens when you, when you can walk somewhere and pass by neighbors and pass by other people. There's so much that's happening in the way of meeting our needs, even if it's not um, tangible or it's hard to name that felt sense of connection and the felt sense of these, these are my people. This is my community is able to grow. That's almost impossible to achieve. I think when we're in our cars separated from one another. So my kids are in dance. I actually find that I spend a lot of an inordinate amount of time with dance moms. Maybe they're a very special breed of mom. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I, I, I've heard a lot just, you know, as my city has grown and changed how, okay, we got Walmart now and boy, does that make being a mom easier? Cause I can just go to one spot and get everything I need. And Oh, now we got Costco. That's going to make life even easier than Walmart because now I can, you know, go to Costco and get in bulk everything that I need. It doesn't seem to me as an observer. And, and I guess I will acknowledge an observer with a certain level of bias towards this development pattern. It doesn't seem to me like that theory has proven to be correct. I'm interested in your take on that. What need are we trying to address there, and and is it being fulfilled or met or not? Mm -hmm. 
I think that the the need there that's being met is tied into the speed at which we're living. I think that the need for efficiency is met by places like that. We can go in and bulk shop so we don't have to shop again. And we can, you know, go through and do all the, the buying we need to so we don't have to go back. But that does enable you to keep up in a culture that's moving really quickly. That's true. When I lived in Austin, Costco helped me to feel a little less crazy because at least I could go to one place and get all the things I needed instead of having to drive another 20 minutes for another place. That's a totally different model than I think what we need to be headed toward. The opposite experience is what I found when we lived in, in Chiapas, where they were all mom and pop shops and you walked through all of them. And that was meeting needs that I think are much more important than efficiency when you when you're talking about people thriving you have an interaction with the bread baker and then you walk a little bit further and your kids are with you and they're walking too and there's no cars so they're safe and everybody can dawdle if they want to and then you stop in and you visit with somebody at a coffee shop and then you're going to walk a little bit further and you can have your knives sharpened and whatever it is but there's a human interaction throughout the whole thing there's a quality of experience that's happening of life and instead of just sort of the 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 quantity or how how little time can i spend shopping well this becomes that getting the things you need is part of what you do that's when you when you talked about what what were we doing with our time in mexico well we actually spent more time doing things like shopping cuz i loved going to the market I love going to the markets in Mexico is one of my favorite things to do ever. Going to Costco, I would like to get in and out as quick as possible. Thank you very much. So it's it's completely different. It makes living be what you're doing. It doesn't feel like a daily grind when you get to dawdle along the street and see your friends as you pass and take your time. So I think it's we're talking about two totally different models of living. You've talked a number of times about running into people and meeting people and chatting with people. I noted in your profile that you are describe yourself as an INFJ from the Myers-Briggs test, I being an introvert, being one myself. I want to give you a chance to talk about how, you know, with introverted people draw their energy from downtime, kind of alone, like alone time. How does living in the bustle of a place where you're running into people all the time and grandma and grandpa are there up in your business and you've got, uh, you know, cousins uh, living next door, sticking their head in the window saying, hey, you know, what's up? How does an introvert square themselves with that kind of life? Because I, I too have lived in that for brief periods of time and found it beautiful. I find today, like, I need to be alone. Uh, is that just like me trying to escape modernity or, or like how, how do you reconcile those things? I've been surprised myself that uh, despite my introversion, I have felt uh, more uh, content when I've lived. We, I lived in the middle of nowhere for a while and kind of did the hermit thing, thinking that's what I wanted, me and my husband at the time and my kids. And it, I was really miserable. Um, <laughs> and then I lived in the, you know, the hustle and bustle of an old Mexican city and was thriving like never before. And one of the ways that I make sense of that is that my need for belonging was being met. I don't have to always be interacting with people, but it, it really, it does a lot for me to simply feel like there are people around me in part because I love people. I just don't always want to talk to them. Right. <laughs> I, love, I love observing people. I'm super fascinated when I can, you know, when I could sit out on a, a this, the streets of Mexico and just watch people watch. There were some, I was really being filled because I'm making observations uh, all the time of human behavior. It's utterly fascinated by human behavior. And so when I was in isolation, I do need a lot of downtime. I would go out, be among people, and then I would go home and process it. And I do need that downtime, but I actually can't thrive even as an introvert, unless I have people around me, I don't have to always interact with them. You know, if you do have grandparents and extended family all living near you, I think that that it could get to be overwhelming. And then there's a this wonderful modern concept of boundary setting that can come into play um, that, that we also uh, needs to come into the conversation as soon as we start talking about community building. So, so as Planners and engineers and people building cities, we, we often 
have these meetings that we'll put together. Well, we'll invite people in to hear their comments and we'll put out different options and, and get feedback. I sometimes see moms come there and they'll have, you know, one kid on one hip and the other kid like running around the room. They're trying to keep a handle on. I feel for them because I know they're trying very hard to be engaged in the community. They're trying to, you know, follow what's going on at the same time. They're, you know, have this kind of other distraction that they, you know, have their passion about. If we wanted to set up engagement uh, for the lack of a better word, that's the way planners like to call it. If we wanted to truly understand the mothers in our community and their needs and, and actually hear some of these things, such as interaction about the pace of life and interaction about walkability and, and the kind of things you brought up a few moments ago, what would be the most respectful way to go about getting those opinions? When mothers or when anyone really feels like their voice actually matters to people, that feels re like respect. That if there was a message of, we really want to hear what you specifically need, what's your take on this? Because not many people are asking mothers that question. I think that, that that's a really respectful thing to lead with, that your your opinion of this actually matters um, a lot within the community, that that message is imparted. But there's also the issue of what's an effective way to actually then get those mothers engaged. <laughs> I think it has to do often with there being childcare options. There's got to be a slowing down. So there, there's this thing that happens when a mom like decides she's going to find the energy to get out and, and uh, let's say, go to a, a community planning event or meeting of some sort. She's already, she's going to be vulnerable because she's got her kids on either hip or she's going to have to pay for childcare or whatever it is. But she's going to come, come in there already at a disadvantage because culturally we don't, we still frown upon the mother with her children who's being a distraction. So there's got to be safe places for for mothers to come and be mothers. But like when you've had a really messy, crazy, chaotic morning with your children, and then you show up at a city planning meeting and maybe you couldn't find childcare for your kids, you still have a lot to say. You just need the space to be respectful of where you are in your life and of this role that you play that's so essential. So I think we need way more child-friendly spaces. Um, so if a, if at a city planning meeting that this particular one happens to be kid friendly, that you've got on uh, site childcare and you also say mothers are always welcome to have their babies with them. And you almost, it requires that we slow down. That's the problem is that we have an efficiency model for everything in this culture. And that is, it doesn't work with motherhood. It doesn't work with the needs of young children. So we, you have to be able to slow down long enough to go, oh, there's going to be interruptions because there's kids involved here, but it's okay because this is important. The needs of mothers and children are different than other members of the community. It's a less efficient model. You know, it's a less efficient time of our lives, but we're still trying to move at the pace of everyone who's not involving children in the things they do. It's just not realistic. Does that make sense? It, it totally we does. Feel it's like a setup, you know, it's like a setup. You want mothers to come. Yes. But no, we're, we're trying to do public hearings, for example, in the most efficient way. Let's get everybody together in one spot. Let's give them, you know, a certain amount of time and let's get through it real quickly. I hear you saying, if you truly want to engage mothers in a community, you've got to slow down the way you engage them. You actually have to meet them in a, in a slower pace setting and get that feedback over a longer period of time to have it actually be reflective of, of where they are. Yes, I think that's definitely true. There's a lot of sort of hiding of the fact, the messiness of motherhood. We feel like in order to engage with the rest of the world, we have to hide how messy this part of our lives is. Because motherhood is messy. Raising children is messy. It is not efficient. And so when we feel like suddenly, well, I'm going to have to now get it together and put on my business suit and go act like I'm somebody and I'm in a different stage of life that I'm not in, it, it doesn't even feel genuine. You know, it's like um, 
there's got to be more acceptance of the fact that yes, this is a this is a challenging time of life that you you got to slow it down in order for it, it. There's also a trust factor I think with a lot of with a lot of mothers where they don't expect to be heard, they don't expect to be honored. There's a dumbing down that's happening culturally, even just by calling what did I hear? Like this whole idea of mommy wars, like mommy, that word is sort of, it feels dumbed down. We've done a lot of that with mothers, that it's not a revered, respected role where, where these, these women are looked to as people who have more to offer. Actually Uh, it's the opposite. And I, I don't think that's true. I think mothers have more to offer than, than most people recognize in this culture. The website is revolutionfromhome.com. You've been uh, listening to Beth Barry. Beth, I want to thank you for your writing and the work that you do. And I especially want to thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me today and giving us your thoughts and opinions. It's, it's been a lot to me, and I hope we get a chance to do it again in the future. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's been really great for me, too, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm going to continue to read your site. I hope you continue to write. I, next time I'm in Asheville, I will get a hold of you and see if we can meet. I would love to meet you in person. That would be great. I'd love that too, Chuck. All right. You take care, Beth. Thanks so much. You do the same. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.